welcome back to the middle of culture. I'm one of your hosts, Peter. I'm your other host, Eden. Well, Eden, how the heck you been doing? Before we started recording, you you mentioned that you were getting ready to uh, start the new job. I am. New job starts next week. Um, And I have just been a busy little bee when it comes to pop culture the last couple of weeks. That's excellent. I don't know if I've been that busy. I I feel like, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like I don't have a good feel for what I have even read, watched, listened to anything like that lately. Cause it's been a little busy between work and between, you know, my wife being down at, at grad school and, and Utah. And I had to, excuse me, I got to travel up to Jackson this past weekend for a strategic planning retreat for the year for the hospital. Um, ex- excuse uh, a question from the audience. Uh, was that a work trip? Oh, yes. That was a work trip that went from Thursday night until Sunday morning. Then it wasn't got to. If you had to do it for your job, it was had to. It's never got to. <laughs> oh, oh, but Eden, they put me up in the Four Seasons in Jackson, which is, this is kind of obscene. I, I looked just just for fun to see. And this place starts at $1,000 a night. Good Lord. Right. The first night we were there, you know, like I said, we got in Thursday or I got in Thursday evening, checked in, went down for dinner and the CEO of the hospital comes up and, and shakes my hand and is like, oh, thanks for coming. And he's like, so have you ever been here before? And I kind of looked at him and I was like, no, I said, Jordan, I am a Hampton Inn kind of guy, not yeah. a Four Seasons kind of guy. Uh-huh. You know, I love the Hampton Inn. It's a base level of quality where you know it's going to be at least okay. You got breakfast taken care of. And since I'm almost always there with, you know, my son for a swim meet or something, he can fuel up before he goes to the meet. And it's like a hundred, 150 bucks a night. That's ideal, man. I mean, it, it was one of those things where I sat there and I was like, no question. This is a beautiful resort. The rooms are nice. Uh, it's kind of got that jazz, that Jackson sort of rustic feel to it that, you know, the the Jackson sort of people uh, are big into. Sure. But I, I sat there looking at it and I'm sitting in this room and I'm going, you know, there is not a world in which this room is $850 nicer <laughs> than... Yeah. Then, you know, like, like again, a uh, Hampton Inn that I'm chilling at. I mean, yeah. is it nicer? Well, yeah. But is it a, like $850? No, there's no way it's that much nicer. So <laughs> I, I'm glad I wasn't paying for it. Uh, but, you know, it was an okay meeting. But again, there was travel involved. And, and I was so freaking tired that I just didn't even bother. Well, no, I take that back. I took advantage of the drive time to finally finish listening to uh, uh, the audiobook of The Eye of the World, the first Wheel of Time book. And so I finally made it through that one because I, again, as I have previously mentioned, have determined that I want to make it through that series. And, you know, I've got the prequel novella and the first book down. Bam. Only 13 more books to go. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> 
just, so, <laughs> it's a lot. So, so what have you been checking out? What, what have you been enjoying in these last few weeks since we last talked? So, like I said, I've been drinking from the uh, garden hose of culture uh, straight on like a fire hose. Um, I recently purchased the box set of the comic Claymore. Um, you probably never have heard of it. It is a... I have not. 15, 20-year-old Japanese comic. Um, and it is very good. But the only way that you can get it in English uh, in 2022 is if you buy the 27-volume boxed set. So, oh, good lord. You have to know whether or not you really want to read this or you got to pirate it. And I was going to pirate it. But I, it came at the very high recommendation of a friend of mine. Um, and so I decided to just do it. Just buy. Just buy the nice. box set. Uh, and then I mainlined those suckers. I read all 27 volumes in like a week. Uh, oh, my goodness sakes. It's great. It's a really good comic. <laughs> wow. It's really good. I'm amazed. Um, yeah. No, I Very impressed. It's ba- it is basically how I spent most of my free time uh, for a week was reading Claymore. Uh, and it was very good. Uh, very violent. Uh, incredible action sequences. Um, it's very... Uh, it's, it's overblown. It's very just... It's wild. It's The premise of it is that there are these demons called Yoma that exist and prey upon humans... Um, and the only thing that can fight a Yoma is a Claymore, which is these women who have had Yoma flesh put inside of their bodies to basically turn them into half human, half demon. Um, so that makes them powerful enough that they can then fight these demons and they can wield these enormous Claymores with one hand. Um, cause that's kind of their signature is that they carry these enormous Claymores, but they don't, they're gotcha. not, they're not two hand in them like you normally would. Uh, and you know, it follows the weakest of her generation, which is Claire. She's number 47. So she's the weakest in her generation of Claymore warriors and just like all of the wild stuff that happens over the course of that book. Uh, and it gets real wild with like, uh, uh, like, people who become like awakened beings which are like claymores that like go full evil and like the whole yoma takes over and then they become like stronger than the demon yoma and then there are like the abyssal ones which were like the three most powerful of the awakened beings that controlled different like poles on the continent and like it was there was a seven-year time jump in the middle because why wouldn't there be why wouldn't there be put a seven year time jump into your book uh it was wild i thoroughly enjoyed it uh and it was really a joy to watch uh norihiko yagi the uh the writer and uh an artist to watch him improve as an artist um was really really stunning because, like, looking at that first book, it's, like, pretty good. But by the end, he had grown so much as an artist that it was really impressive. Cool. But So it was really great. I enjoyed myself. And then this weekend, um, I bought a video game called Steel Rising. Have you heard of Steel Rising at all? No, it's not ringing any bells. Um, it is developed by Spiders. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with them as a studio. They're a French studio. I know I should be. What else have they made? Uh, 
The name sounds. I know. I know a game their, of theirs. Their least. last, their last game was their biggest, and I, I think still maybe their best game, which was Greedfall. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, you know, I, I picked up Greedfall at some point when I was in my hankering for an RPG that was story rich, something to prevent me basically from going back and playing Mass Effect again. And Greedfall had popped up as as a suggestion, and so I snagged it, but I have not played it yet. Well, if you do get that hankering, Greedfall is a very good, uh, a good fulfillment of that, I would say, because Greedfall is, what if Mass Effect, but in an alternate reality colonialist world? But like... Yeah the way that you interact with your party members and like have hub spaces and like travel through different places and doing side quests. It feels a lot like those, those like mid to late period Bioware games. Um, cool. And it's very good. It's deeply problematic for a lot of reasons, but I think that it's also just like a little hidden gem of a game because you can see that like, and this is true of all of the Spiders games I've played. I also played their game before that. They've had four main, like, major releases that weren't, like, working with another studio to port their stuff or whatever. And their first game was called Mars War Logs, which I've never played because I think it's Xbox 360 exclusive. And then they had uh, the Technomancer. No, it's on the, it's on, it's on PC. Is it on PC? Well, maybe I should pick it up because I've really enjoyed sure. their other games. I bet, let's just for fun. I'm going to fire up my Steam library. I bet you own it then if it's on Steam. And I'm going to look because I am pretty sure I own Mars Warlogs. Mars Warlogs. There it is. Well, there you go. I own it. Uh, But I haven't played that, but I have played its sequel, Technomancer, which I thought was pretty great. Again, uh, very ambitious. They don't really have the scope and budget to do the sort of things that they're thinking about. Uh, but I think that that makes me respect them all the more that they like push themselves to do it anyway. Um, sure. So it's and Greedfall was even more of that where it was like I can see like the galaxy brain idea that you had here and that you tried to get into the game and you didn't get all of it there, but you got a lot of it there and I respect the hell out of that. Uh, and so well, their and newest again, game, you know, you always got to appreciate when they shoot for the moon. And I have a very soft spot for just like Eurojank B games. I just do. I just do. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't, but I, I have a soft spot for them. And that is clearly what these are. Um, but Steel Rising is their new game. Um, and it is their take on a Souls-like, um, which I'm not good at those. I'm not. I've tried a few of them. I'm not good at them. I don't have the patience that it requires to play those. But yeah, that that's me too. But Steel Rising has the greatest accessibility options for a Souls-like game I have ever seen. And like the only other one that I've played to completion that is more or less that way, but is sometimes more like a Metroidvania than a Souls-like, but it's still ultimately it's combat and mechanics work like that is Jedi Fallen Order because it had difficulty sliders. Yeah, I could play it on story mode and get through the game. Uh, But what Steel Rising has in their accessibility options is you can change the length of the parry window. You can change it so that you don't lose your XP when you die. 
which is one of the like defining features of a souls game is you die you lose all your souls and you got to run back and find your souls before you die again you can turn that off uh you can turn off uh, how long it takes your stamina to come back and most importantly there's a slider for how much damage do you want to take from enemies Oh, that's fantastic. Do okay, you want to take, I'm in. Do you want to take 100% damage like a regular game? Then don't touch it. Do you want to take 0% damage, but you still have to learn how to fight these things because you still get hit and knocked on your ass. And so you still have to like engage with the combat and the way that the combat works. You still have to learn how does this boss move? How do I get in, get my hits in on that boss without getting knocked down? And then I lose my stamina and it takes me a long time to stand up and then I get hit another two times and I would be dead if I didn't have the damage completely off. So I turned it down all the way to zero and I had a hell of a great time playing that game. Nice. Just a grand time because it also, I think, is a bit more RPG than Souls-likes often are because the uh-huh. the conceit of Steel Rising is it is an alternate reality version of 19 or 1780s France. And the revolution was going to pop off, uh, except this time Louis XVI had automats, had robots that he sicked on the populace and they have run amok and now there's killer robots everywhere. Um, And you play as one of these killer robots who was the bodyguard to Marie Antoinette, um, but has a level of cognition and thinking that the other automats don't. You You can speak, you can think in ways that these are just like clearly machines on, on like, uh, you know, set set pathways. Um, and so Marie Antoinette's like, you need to go to Paris and figure out what's going on. And therein lies the start of the game. And so you go through and you assemble a murderer's row of actual people who were present during the French Revolution. You've got Maximilien Robespierre right there. You've got the Marquis de Lafayette. You've got Lavoisier. You've got... Uh, Uh, you've got all these people who are like well-known characters in the actual French Revolution who you are like going and bringing together and like building these coalitions with Um, but it also has like I said a lot of RPG element to it because you go back to the like hub where they're all hanging out and you can have these long conversations with them and eventually make choices in terms of your like the dialogue that you have like will i tell people about certain things that i found out or will i keep those secrets to myself that will eventually affect the end game gotcha and uh i probably spent 20 hours playing it this weekend like it was like all i did like i i hung out with my wife i cuddled with my dogs and i played steel rising and i had a great time nice you know, it was cool. I, I have seen it uh, now. You know, I looked it up on Steam really quick while you were talking, and it's definitely one that has popped up in my queue uh, to look at. And uh, now that you have recommended it, I may have to check it out because it sounds like you know I, I've always wanted to get into the Souls-like games to at least a certain degree. Uh, and you know, maybe something that kind of lets me dip my toe without getting my butt handed to me would be a good way for me to appreciate at least 
some of the trappings of those games. Yeah, this is a great baby's first Soul-like after playing it. It is a, a nice. stellar introduction to the genre. Again, as a person who has only played, I mean, I guess I played Code Vein to completion, but that was because I installed literally a cheat engine on my computer so that I could play that game. <laughs> I made it maybe 10 hours in and I got to this boss that I simply could not beat no matter how good I got. <laughs> so I installed Mod, and then I pushed F1. Suddenly I didn't take damage anymore. Uh, and that was how I beat Code Vein. So I didn't feel guilty about doing it in Steel Rising either. Um, but at least it was built into the game this time. Nice. Uh, yeah, well, I appreciate them. You know, I, I understand the, for example, the From Software ethos, that this is how we make games and, and this is, there's no question that that's what a certain percentage of people who play games, that's what they want. That's what they're looking for. But I, as an old man, am extremely appreciative of companies that say, here's our vision for the game but we're more than happy to meet you where you are. Agreed. And let's, let's, you know, give you some things here so that, y you know, you can enjoy the game the way you would like to enjoy it. If that happens to be somewhat distinct from how we developed it. Cool. I, I appreciate developers who respect that. So me too. And if, uh, if for no other reason, I want to support that kind of thing. So I'll definitely be picking it up. It's, it's great, and I love that it's only fifty dollars. Like, it's not sixty or seventy. It's not full full price game. It's fifty bucks, and uh, it was definitely worth my fifty bucks. I felt like I definitely got my money's worth out of it. Nice, that's it was, excellent. It I'll was definitely cool. check it out. It was a very cool game, so I I recommend it. Very good. You know, there is something that I have been getting into a little bit lately, and I think that this can kind of feed into. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about before we get into uh, the main topic of discussion for today, which is our continuance of the summer now beginning to turn into the fall of X. Um, but one of the things that I did go ahead and check out is I started watching, well, so two Fridays ago, I guess two weeks ago tomorrow, uh, as we're recording, I had a little bit of time. I got out of work. I think I finished, I think it was surgery. I had some surgeries and I got them done, uh, quick, got home and my boys were still in school and sat down and fired up the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power on Amazon prime. And there's been a lot of talk about this show in, in the lead up to it because of the sort of ridiculous amounts of money that Amazon has spent on this, not only to acquire the rights, but you know, the millions, tens, if not up to almost, I think somebody, I heard somewhere it was like a hundred million dollars. I don't know. It was 50 to a hundred million dollars per episode, which is kind of insane when you think about it. Oh yeah. It's wild. And, and so I thought, you know what? I have not in recent years really partaken of the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work very much, but I have a deep love of it because as I think many people, and especially amongst kind of the more nerd, uh, you know, 
uh, nerd groups, of which I am certainly part of, Tolkien was kind of, for many of us, our first introduction to epic fantasy. Whether it was The Hobbit, which is less epic fantasy, but a really good gateway book to his world, or if it was the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings itself. And then subsequently, you know, in the early 2000s, the, the movies that came out directed by Peter Jackson, which again, haven't watched in a long time because they're real long and I don't have a ton of time, but I do remember thinking that they were a very well done adaptation of the books and the keyword being adaptation. They weren't translating the books directly, but they were saying, how do we take this story and how do we turn it into a movie, which is a different medium and needs to, in some ways be different. And I uh -huh. loved those movies, especially the extended editions. So I started watching the Lord of the Rings. Uh, rings of power first thing i'll say mind bogglingly gorgeous i mean yeah. you you look at it and you just go okay uh, you know what you spent a whole lot of money on this and i can tell you know mm. you can see that money is up there on the screen i mean sure these sweeping vistas and the effects and you know, everything just looks so good. Um, and so uh, that I was like, okay, this is cool. I'm back to, I'm back to Tolkien land. And then the other thing that really sort of allowed these first three episodes to kind of get their claws in me is they avoided doing what I was most worried they would do. And mm -hmm. that is, especially the fact that they were coming out you know, they're coming out pretty contemporary with House of the Dragon on HBO. But I was very concerned that Amazon would feel the need to Game of Thronesify Lord of the Rings because Game of Thrones was such and really it kind of continues to be a very uh, prominent, talked about, uh, you know, in, in kind of the cultural zeitgeist uh, fantasy story. And you know, really probably took fantasy more to the mainstream than anything else has in, in at least the last decade or so. But, you know, George R. R. Martin isn't Tolkien. No. They don't tell stories the same. They don't have the same, and I don't know if it's a worldview thing, if it's just a goal thing, but the thing I always enjoyed about Tolkien, and maybe this says more about me than anything, but I always loved... His stories really were, they were good versus evil. And there was good and there was evil. And there mm -hmm. are some people who are maybe a little bit in between, but it was always much more hopeful in his storytelling. And it was, again, this big battle of good versus evil, where in the end, good was going to triumph. And, you know... I don't need to watch hours and hours and hours of people being awful to each other. Mm -hmm. And I like having characters who I can go, there's my hero. I'm rooting for those people. And Tolkien has always been, a, you know, that's always been to me, at least a key aspect of his storytelling. So, before I get into then the second part, I don't know. Have you had a chance to watch any of this? I have not. I, uh, I too was worried about the game of thrones of it because I tried watching that show and it just wasn't for me. I'm, 
I understand there are a lot of people who really like it, but I watched the pilot and I was just like, I'm good. I'm just good. Yeah. Uh, and so and I didn't I've never even watch it. I just read the first book and went, huh? The only person in this book who I kind of sort of like died like a third of the way in. Well, and I hate go. the rest of the characters. So, yeah, yeah I just, it, it didn't, it, it held no appeal for me. Uh, and so I was afraid that the same thing would be true here. Uh, and though I have heard that is different, uh, I just haven't gotten around to it. I, I'll probably wait till it's out all done and then maybe I'll watch it. But uh, yeah, totally I, I don't know. I just, I haven't gotten around. To, I was too busy reading 27 volumes of Claymore. <laughs> I think that that's a fair reason to have not had a chance to watch it. But here's the thing that I actually really wanted us to talk about for a few minutes. And that is the idea of toxic fandom. So, you know, in, in last week's uh, episode of She-Hulk that came out, there was a wonderful little comment from Tatiana Maslany, from Jennifer. Uh, and she says to the camera, near the beginning, after it is revealed that Wong is again in this episode, I love the little line she has where she says that should give us Twitter armor for another week. And yes. it's, it was funny because it's also sad because it's kind of true because there has been so much to some degree from a certain subset of the fans, a really toxic reaction to She-Hulk. And in a similar way, there has been an incredibly toxic reaction amongst a certain group of fans to the rings of power, just like there was an incredibly toxic reaction to the Amazon wheel of time series, which I watched and I thought it was fine. It was again, an adaptation of the story. Some of the changes that they made, I don't understand why they felt they needed to make those, but as a fantasy story, I was like, okay, this is all right. Did I love it? No. Will I watch the next season? Yeah. I was entertained enough to do that, but the anger, and the vitriol that some people uh, feel the need to spew online towards some of these projects that are adaptations of, you know, uh, stories, books, comics, that sort of thing. I don't understand it. How does anyone have enough energy to get so pissed off about a damn TV show? Amen. Help me understand, Eden. <laughs> I'd... There is no, there is no rhyme or reason to it, and it's just misogyny. That's all it boils down to. It is the fact that, uh, and, and I think that you can also see it. That, you know, this is also a timely part of this conversation, in the absolute absurd backlash to Halle Bailey being cast in The Little Mermaid. Oh my gosh! And the first, uh, I, yeah. the, the first teaser for that dropped, and it looked like garbage. Not because Hallie was in it, because Hallie's great and beautiful. It looked like garbage because the effects looked terrible. But whatever, it's it's a teaser trailer for a movie that's not due out for like a year or a year and a half. Um, but the way that people have gone so apeshit over the fact that the Little Mermaid is black in this movie. <laughs> is just, just like the people who on the on the internet are like well, it's not scientifically accurate because uh sunlight would not dog there's no such thing as mermaids 
There's no such thing as mermaids. <laughs> so, wait a second. So people are having a problem with the color of the top half of her body, but have no problem with the fact that she's got fins and breathes underwater. I'm saying. Or they're like, <laughs> this is Danish culture. So this is like cultural appropriation for oh, them making bullshit. a black person be in our Danish fairy tale. And you're like, okay, number one, the original story is literally about how Hans Christian Andersen is gay and in love with a man, but they can't be together because it's the 1800s. Like anyone with two brain cells to rub together can look at the original little mermaid and be like, Oh, this is cause Hans Christian Andersen is sad. Cause he is super gay and he can't be with his boyfriend because it's not, you can't do that back then. So a, no, this is not your beloved culture. This is one person's cultural production. I mean, they say the same thing about Lord of the Rings. They're like, this is our culture. And you're like, no dog. It's one dude who wrote some books. It's not your right. culture. And even if it is your culture, I spit upon it. Let's make it more interesting. Yes. Anyway. Yes. It's, I, mm. it's just absurd. It's, it's embarrassing and it's absurd. And it is so clearly fueled by misogyny and racism. And the people who are doing it are so clearly exhibiting that, even though they try to ameliorate it by saying that that's not what it is. They're just doing it for, for authenticity. And you're like... This is all pretend. This is all it's pretend. It's all fiction. It's all pretend. There is nothing authentic about fiction. It's just uh, some it's just, just some guys who wrote some stuff, guys. It's okay. You know, and you really do. You bring up a great point, and that is and I have to agree with you 100%. Every time you look at these comments, the two big comments that I briefly glanced at when it came to the Rings of Power and then immediately went this is a cesspool of which I will not further participate. They were either people bagging on um, Galadriel's character and oh, yeah. all getting down to the fact that she's not behaving in the way they think that she should to, again, I would say, first of all, it's fiction. Second of all, if you've got this magical being who's lived for thousands and thousands of years, like what makes you think she should behave how you want her to behave? Just like piss off, dude. Mm -hmm. Like seriously. And then also the fact that, Oh, there's a black elf. <laughs> and, and I, I just, that was where I was just like, you know what? Like you said, it all comes from, from misogyny, from racism and, and from this bizarre sense that you have any, right to to this to this work to yeah. this fiction in any way uh -huh. you don't you can identify with it but that's a personal choice that's something that you're choosing and you can choose to make it a part of your personality but again that's a choice and if all of a sudden it changes in a way that conflicts with your personality that's on you mate like you're the one who screwed up by making this work of fiction created decades ago, part of your personal identity. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to tell you other than you're stupid and <laughs> well, I might be okay if you chose to remove yourself from the gene pool. Like seriously. Yeah. I just, you know, and, 
And I see it, and I've seen it also with Marvel in Phase 4. Mm-hmm. And we briefly talked about kind of the things with Phase 4. And perhaps Phase 4, all the projects haven't hit quite the same way things were hitting in Phase 3. And there's a, a lot of potential reasons for that. But at the same time, I look at it and I go, hey, they're trying things and some of them work and some of them don't work quite as well. And that's okay. Like I don't have to be absolutely completely enamored with every single thing that is released in the MCU because it's just entertainment and it's entertainment that I enjoy a lot, but it's just entertainment. And so when Falcon and the winter soldier comes out and I think eh, it was kind of just sort of okay. And I had fun while I was watching it, but I haven't thought about it in the last year and whatever I go. Oh yeah, that was a thing. And that's cool. And I'm curious to see what they do with those characters next. But beyond that, I don't care. Yeah. Here's, here's where I think in lies the problem. (laughs) This is going to sound maybe a little strong, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do it. Just do it. Who cares? America does not have a culture. We do not have, yeah. as, a, as a society, we do not have a unifying culture. And I think that that is largely a good thing because we are a society of, yes. of multiplicity and, and, and diversity. And I think that that is good. However, that leads a certain subset of the population to make their identity their place as consumers of products. And this happens across Mm. various and sundry types of products. There are people whose entire identity is the fashion that they purchase or the types of purses that they can afford or the Tesla bros who get so excited about driving a Tesla and that that's their whole, their whole personality becomes the fact that they own a shoddily made car by a charlatan. Um, And the same (laughs) thing happens here with media. People make, the media that they consume their entire identity and therefore anything that changes that media or or expands that media to not be directly hyper laser focused right at their white male asses suddenly they're mad about it because that's largely the people who do this they're white guys who have nothing else of worth or importance in their lives. And so they build their entire identity around the movies they watch or the TV shows they watch or the books they read or the RPGs they play or the comics they read. And that's how you get Comicsgate. That's how you get uh, all of this backlash that we're talking about because all Gamergate. Gamergate. All they have is consumption. And so when they see something that they don't like, they can't do what you just talked about doing with Winter Soldier, where you go, it was mid. We'll see where those characters show up again. They have to become outraged because it's all their little lives have. Because they haven't done anything that matters. Yeah. All they've done is watch some movies. Man, that is such a good point. That is such a good point. When your entire existence, like you said, your identity, your sense of self is focused on consumption, then yeah, you're going to get butt hurt when something doesn't fit your narrow little worldview. Yeah. You know, and I think you're right. It's that being able and being willing to go, no, these are the things I enjoy, but that's not what I am or who I am. Yeah, like I play video games. I am not a gamer. 
because a gamer means that your identity is built on playing video games. I just play video games sometimes. Uh, no, sometimes a fair amount of the time. Cause I think it's fun. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I think a lot of it comes back to the fact that people who, and, and yeah, this is going to sound maybe a little harsh too. People who base their identities on the things they consume, it's because they're literally not giving anything back to the world. Oh, a hundred percent. They're parasites. They're social and they're societal parasites. A hundred percent. Who are not contributing to the world around them. And so they have no good that they are producing. And so all they can do is throw out spite and vitriol and petty little arguments that don't make any sense to anyone with half a brain cell or even an ounce of maturity. And it's, it's so pathetic. Mm-hmm. It's just sad. Like, I wish that these people could find something else to get this worked up over. Or if they were yeah. to get this worked up over it, to be like, but it doesn't really matter. Like, I'll feel your emotions, stand in your truth, but then get over it. Right. I don't know. It's just absurd. It's just sad. Uh, and is the failure is the failure of our society and but it's not it's and again it, i'm not saying this because i want us to have a monoculture i think monocultures are bad as a general rule but like it still is a failure of us as a society because we are so atomized and independent because that is such an important part of american culture is the absolute independence and isolation of us as as singular human beings rather than parts of yeah. a community that you don't see yourself as a part of a community unless you build that community on your consumption yeah really good point it's and a failed state i hadn't quite thought of about it that way but uh you know i think i i appreciate you mentioning it and bringing it up that's why i wanted to talk about it so but hey you know everyone what, should just go watch go watch rings of power apparently it's pretty good galadriel kicks ass she does. I think she's awesome. And, and here's the thing. Enjoy what you enjoy. Oh, hell and that's yeah. totally cool. And you know what? If somebody doesn't enjoy something you enjoy, who cares? And if you don't enjoy something that somebody else is enjoying, who cares? Amen. You don't need to try and convince them to your way of thinking. We're all allowed to like what we like. I have absolutely zero interest, as I said, in watching Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon. But there are millions of people who love it. And that's cool. I don't care. Good Amen. for all of us. Speaking of things we may or may not have liked, <laughs> let's talk about X-Men First Class. What a segue. <laughs> That was a winner. <laughs> well, okay. So I'm going to do a really quick plot summary and then let's just get into it. So I'm going to yeah. really quick plot summary. So it opens again with what I think might be the exact same scene from the first X-Men. I it couldn't is, tell if this very first part is re is redone or if it's the exact same thing. I pulled it up. It's redone, but it is nearly a shot for shot recreation, but they have the new kid in it that you see in the next scene. Yeah. And, and I couldn't tell I wasn't, maybe this is on me. I wasn't paying enough attention at the very first scene to tell if maybe they just pulled a fast one on us when they get to the second scene. Anyway, we open up, we're in Auschwitz. Eric Lenscher is being pulled away from his parents. His power manifests. He bends the gate. 
boom, he's in an office with Klaus Schmidt, this Nazi officer who witnesses this and demands that he move a coin because he knows he's a mutant. And when he can't move the coin under pressure, Klaus kills Eric's mother and then his powers manifest and he crushes the metal helmet of the two guards that are there and throws a whole bunch of stuff around the room and Schmidt gets all excited. Boom, move over to... Uh, to, to New York. We have uh, Charles Xavier as a child goes down into the kitchen because he hears a noise and someone who looks like his mother is there and offers to make him hot cocoa. And so he knows immediately that it's not his mother because his mother's never offered to make him hot cocoa. Turns out that it's, it's Raven is her name. She will later don the name Mystique. He's so excited to meet another mutant. She moves in as his foster sister. Fast forward 20 or so years, we've got Eric Lenscher, who is now on a hunt to find Schmidt. There's, uh, you know, he's going around trying to find him at a bunch of different places. We've got a scene in Las Vegas with the Hellfire Club, which we'll talk about, but there's Schmidt in there as well as Emma Frost. And they're trying to convince uh, the arm, this, this army Colonel Hendry that, uh, that the U S should deploy nuclear missiles in Turkey close to Russia. we again, now we see, um, professor Xavier. He's got his PhD as a professor of genetics, Moira McTaggart, this, uh, CIA officer is working with them. They meet up with some of the mutants. All of a sudden you find out that Hank McCoy, who turns out is a mutant, even though the people he was working with didn't know it. Smart dude. He'd built a proto cerebro, which professor X uses to find a whole bunch of mutants. And then we get this uh, scene, this sort of montage of them going around and collecting mutants. Um, they get together this group of mutants the bad guys, Shaw and Emma Frost, continue to manipulate both the Russians to start moving missiles down towards Cuba. And then we have this big, long training section as they're getting ready to go and, and fight uh, Shaw. And then we get to the end where basically U.S. ships, Russian ships, and this boat that's got the missiles on it heading towards Cuba, towards this barricade. Shaw is trying to make sure that it gets there so that World War III will start with nuclear, you know, Holocaust. And we've got uh, Professor, you know, we've got Charles and we've got Eric and then this group of mutants there trying to stop him. And then Shaw's there with his kind of little group of mutants and fight, fight, fight. Uh, we get a lovely scene, which again, we'll go back into our uh, Xavier is a horrible human being section where <laughs> he has... He has trapped Shaw and has him totally frozen like he can do with people against their will. And he knows, he knows what's going to happen. And Eric takes this coin from the very beginning and very gradually and slowly pushes it Look. right through Shaw's forehead and out the back of his head. Look, I'm that not is not he was wrong to do that. I was going to say that's not a stain on Charles Xavier's uh, ledger in my humble. Oh, no. See, here's the only reason that I say it is is because Charles is yelling at Eric to not do it. Yeah, that's a good point. He should be but like, he continues hell to yeah, keep Shaw. hell yeah. He continues to keep Shaw like, so So that's, that's where I'm just like, you know, you've got Xavier who always wants to be the goody two-shoes, but he's not. And in this case, it was totally like, again, I have no problem with what happened, 
But, you know, then, okay, now Eric's pissed off because, understandably, Eric has a lot of rage and it's mostly justified, if not almost entirely justified. You've got the Russians and the Americans. They fire a whole bunch of weapons at the beach to kill all the mutants because they've got them all there. They think they can wipe them all out. And Eric turns the missiles around and starts sending them back to the ships. And then we get Moira McTaggart, who tries to distract Eric by shooting him with guns, or with bullets, and he's deflecting the bullets. And one of them, he deflects right into Charles's uh, spine. And then he rushes over because he's, you know, basically kind of shot Charles now. And the missiles fall into the sea, and then they part. And we get Magneto and his group of mutants who leave. And we've got Charles and his group of mutants who leave. And fast forward, and now Eric has officially taken on the name Magneto, and he frees Emma Frost. And then Charles in his wheelchair is now talking about setting up the school, and then we're done. Yep. So, tell me, what'd you think? Better than I feared... Um, when it's good, there are some really, really stellar moments in this movie that I was like, oh yeah, this movie, this movie's got something. And then there are some real crappy parts. Yeah. Just some real unforced errors where I'm like, that's, why did you do it like that? Why did you do it like that? But then there were these moments that I was just like, I can see, I can see the bones of a great film here but it's just a pretty okay one. Yes, I agree. And I would say the very first thing that needs to happen to make this movie better, it needs to be shorter. Oh yeah. It was too long. It is too long. It's too, there's a and lot it of wasted has space. a real bad second act problem where the setup is fairly good and interesting. And I actually really liked the conclusion, but I was so bored in the second act that I actually turned it off and went to bed and then came back and finished it the next day thinking, Oh my gosh, this is going to be such a slog. I am not enjoying this movie and turned it back on. And within about five minutes was at kind of the big whole final act with the missiles and everything. And I really enjoyed that end of the movie, that part of the movie, but that middle part just bogged down so so much i mean i didn't i didn't go to bed in the middle but i did have a long pause and go out in the yard with my dogs for like half an hour yeah yeah so let's talk about first of all what were some of the things some of the the unforced errors that you noticed um uh one thing that i was surprised this viewing that i think was better than i expected it to be uh I liked Emma Frost more than I remembered liking her. Okay. I think I think that the the CG for her diamond shape is stupid. And why do her clothes disappear when she becomes a diamond? But hey, it looks better than the Emma Frost we got oh, in X Men Origin Wolverine. Much better than X Men Origins. That Wolverines. was the only bar I had to hit when she oh, first no. turned into diamond. I thought to myself, "Is this going to look better?" And it did, though it still doesn't look great. It still and does you're not right. look Why great. Does, yeah. Um, yeah. Other unforced errors, like you said, it's just too long. It's a weird team, like weird choices. That I feel like there are far better um, B love B tier X Men that haven't been in the trilogy that they could have pulled out instead. Like Banshee, really Banshee? That's who you're pulling? Angel. I still want to know. I still want to know how does Banshee fly by screaming? 
Uh, yeah. Is the I idea mean, supposed to be that he's creating sound waves that then ricochet off the ground and then lift, like cr- somehow create lift I for think his wingsuit? So. I think so. It doesn't. I'm it's not pretty clear. sure that's not how physics works. It's no, it's not. Um, it uh, other unforced errors. Jennifer Lawrence is a bad actor. Yes, she's terrible. I wrote in down this in movie. here. J Law is probably the worst actor of the bunch. Oh, undoubtedly. And like Chloe or Zoe Kravitz puts in a dog shit performance too, but it's better than J Law's. Yeah. Um, other dude, unforced even the dude who plays Banshee, who I don't remember, like most of the time just has this weird watery sort of look to him. That yeah. I'm like, you look like you're going to either fall over or break down crying, but I still actually liked him more than I liked Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. No, Jennifer Lawrence was really, really bad. Um, it's by far the horniest of the X-Men movies we watched so far, but unnecessarily oh, yeah. so. I am yes. fine. I am fine with some horniness that is purposeful. I mean, we talked about this when we read uh, when we read those Benjamin Shrin and Kiel books. I love a good horniness that has a good point. None of the horniness in this had any point. Like, in no. what world did Rose Byrne need to strip down to her undies to go into the freaking Hellfire Club? Yeah, in fact, let me, I'm trying to look. Oh, yes. my Here's my note on that. I just wrote, infiltration scene is cringe and unnecessary. Oh, see, I wrote that it was gross and horny. So There we go. Um, Beast looks terrible. Yes. Especially since they literally knocked it out of the park in the earlier film. Uh, oh, Kelsey Grammer's Beast looks so much better. He looks terrible. Um, really. But bad. I think the difference is... And I didn't look close enough because I wasn't paying that much attention. But my gut in comparing the two in my head now is I think Kelsey Grammer's Beast was predominantly practical. And I think that it this was. was a lot more CG. And it clearly shows. Oh, yeah. You know, it's rough. It clearly it's shows rough. the difference. Also, I just thought Beast, like, and I, I don't know the the comics enough to know, was this something they developed? or So, so besides being a really smart dude... Uh-huh. Beast's mutation is that he's got prehensile feet. Yeah. That's it. Uh he's like really strong. And he strong. doesn't turn in in the comics he's like really strong. He has like a, a strength and and like agility and that kind of which he, he sort of shows in this movie cuz he runs really fast. Right. But like but, yeah, no, but his, it's not his powers never made it, sense, which is probably why Claremont was like, yo, let's make him a furry so that his his existence as a mutant makes sense instead of, hey, he got he got uh, chimpanzee feet. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting. And he ends up turning into the blue kind of like, more iconic beast persona when he tries to. OK, so here again, I thought absolutely unforced error. The whole sub store subplot of oh, Mystique's DNA contains the key to us being able to have our mutant powers, but everything looks normal on the outside. Yes. So and and they he straight up refers to it again as this cure, this cure. It just you have enough story already. In fact, you have too much. You needed to trim it down. This whole story should have been completely removed and mm-hmm. never even brought up or discussed. 
because it's stupid, it's pointless, and it bogs the movie down. They could have just kept him as non-furry beast and then furified him in the next movie. They know they're making a sequel yes. to this. Furify him in the next movie. Even do it off screen yeah. in between them and be like, yeah, some of us have secondary mutations, dog. This was mine. Yeah. So many different ways they could have dealt with it other than trying to shoehorn in this idea of a cure yet again. And and, I, and yeah, it leads to some of the cringiest acting on Jennifer Lawrence's part because like she mm -hmm. is clearly so horny for him and he's like, yeah, but you'd be pretty if you didn't turn blue. And you're like, dude, you are fumbling the bag so badly right here. <laughs> you are fumbling the bag. And then what does she do? She goes for Fassbender, which why wouldn't you if Nicholas Hoot is in front of you, but you could also go hit on Fassbender. I would also go hit on Fassbender. Like, don't get it twisted. I, yes, I agree completely. And so she rightfully goes to him and he's like, actually, you're hot when you're your normal self. And she's like, oh, I can be hot and normal. And she's like, yeah, which is like, great. But the acting was so cringed. Well, and also, I don't know, like I, I mm, the scene where, you know, he walks in and she's there in bed and he's like, says something about, you know, she's too young. So then she turns into Rebecca Romaine. Yeah. And I thought that that was I'm like, I see what you're doing, but again, it just didn't work. No, it just doesn't. Like that, yeah, that whole scene. Um, the oh, okay. So here's what I said to Gareth, and he he actually didn't even watch this one with me. He was, <laughs> I think he was probably playing on the PlayStation or something. I don't remember. No judgment. But one of the things I said to him is, I said, um, every movie that has a montage, but in particular, we have two montages here. We have the first montage is when Eric and Charles have used Cerebro and they're going around and they're finding these mutants. The good right? montage. Well, uh, okay. I'll give you that. Maybe. I think I'll just say it's a montage. I it's think montage, that montage number one. I think that montage is entertaining. I, I didn't care for it. Uh, I, it felt superfluous to me. And the only part I actually enjoyed was the Wolverine cameo because, Hey, we've got Wolverine telling them to F off, which was great. But um, there's that montage, and then there's the much more egregious of the two montages, which is the training montage, where yeah, we're this training one was the mutants at Charles's mansion. And I thought to myself, you know what? Every movie needs to go back and watch the training montages from Rocky Two and yep. Rocky Four, mm -hmm. and learn how to do a montage. I was literally just thinking when I was watching this last night, I was like, you know what a good training montage is? Rocky four. That movie sucks. Oh my gosh. It's so good. Rocky four sucks and is like a jingoistic nightmare film, but the training montage it is, is great. You're correct, but it's also but it when is, Dolph Lundgren oh, says, so if good. he dies, he dies. One of the great line reads of all time, but it's a jingoistic nightmare of a film, but the training montage is chef's kiss. It is perfection. I mean, yes. And and I will say, the training montage in Rocky II is a close second. Yeah, it's also it's good. It's really, really good. It's really good. Um, but this, um, again, I didn't find the first one. The first one wasn't like, the, the mutant finding montage wasn't really like offensive to me. I just felt like it was, again, longer than it needed to be. Sure. But oh my goodness, this training montage at the mansion was just... 
I think that was that second act that made me just go, I'm done. Like I'm not interested in this movie anymore. It was between that and like the kids hanging out. Those were the two real drags on that second act. Like them just hanging out in a CIA building, playing pinball and like showing off their powers to each other was like just terrible. And then, like you said, the trick. And and I think the thing that was the worst part about that second montage is that basically what this, I I see what the function of that montage was. A, it was to show them get better at their powers, but it was also to show this is why Charles Xavier is the leader because it is his influence and his uh, efforts that helps each of them recognize and realize and grow in their abilities. And like... Maybe it's PTSD from the other films, but screw Charles Xavier still. <laughs> he, he Did he do anything expe- especially evil in this film like he did in the other three? No, he did not. But I know he's in there. I know that asshole's in there somewhere. You know, and here's the thing. This is not the world's first introduction to the X-Men. No, it is not. Not only have we had multiple movies, but we had a, a well-watched and fairly well-appreciated uh, animated series. And uh, in addition to all of the comic books. And again, I think you know we can say that out of Marvel's properties, X-Men is one of the more well-known, if not the most well-known. Do mm-hmm. we really need to spend that much time on Charles Xavier? Exactly. And I would contest that no, no, we do not. Because we all know exactly. who he is. We already know what's going on with him. I don't need you to tell me or show me because I already know. So don't waste time on it. I 100% agree. It was just an unforced error. And like, I also, I sort of get it because, and I think this is why I liked the earlier montage more than you did. McAvoy and Fassbender, great chemistry, different chemistry than Stewart and uh, um, McKellen have with each other. Because those two dudes also have a shit ton of chemistry and are the linchpin upon which that early trilogy really functions because they do have great chemistry. And this movie largely works on the chemistry between Fassbender and McAvoy, who also have just wonderful chemistry between the two of them. And so I think I liked that first sequence because it was the two of them being roguish as they go around and collect this coterie of of mutants from around the world or from around the u.s but the second one it was too much like and see this is why charles xavier is a good guy because he's gonna stand here and let alex summer almost blast him to death and he's gonna go running with the beast and he's gonna make fassbender feel and make magneto feel feelings again (laughs) it was just like what are you doing guys what are you doing very true well you know I don't know what it was. Fastbender, excellent. McAvoy, I just, he, he didn't quite work for me. And maybe I just could never get over the first time we see him as an adult is just literally, and I think on purpose, so I recognize that, but it may be one of the most cringeworthy things I've ever seen. Oh, him hitting movie. him hitting on the girl with heterochromia? Terrible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I don't, I think I just, I never got over it. The whole rest of the movie, I was just like, oh my gosh, this guy. And especially the fact that he uses that, like the, the 
mutation line on somebody. Uh, it just mm. uses it, he uses it on Warren McTaggart the exact same line, the exact same delivery. Which again, like you said, I see what they're doing here. They're trying to be like, uh-huh. well, isn't he just like a try-hard Lothario? And it's like, okay, that's not what I need from yeah. Charles Xavier. I don't need Charles no, Xavier because really I think he's the worst. But uh, no, Fastbender. Fastbender is the standout to me of this film. Oh, absolutely. He sells every scene he's in so well. And like I was telling Cassie uh, before we hopped on the call, I could have watched a two-hour movie of Eric Lencher goes on a revenge spree against Nazis all over the world. Because those scenes were so good. That scene in Argentina was so good. Oh, cold as ice. That was what I wrote down. I wrote down Argentina equals cold as ice. I mean, just so ruthless. And again, in a way, though, that you are completely sympathetic with him as a character. You root for him so much. When he says to those two guys, my family's name was taken by pig farmers and tailors, and you're just like, he's going to kill him. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) And you're like, you are rooting for him to commit heinous murder against these Nazis, which like, okay, that's choices about myself. But like, (laughs) those scenes ruled. The, or like that scene in the bank when he like threatens the guy. Oh, the Fastbender was great. He is so good in most things I have seen him in. I know he has made some questionable choices. Like I know he was the reason why the Assassin's Creed movie got made because apparently he really likes Assassin's Creed. So he made sure that movie got made and I've heard it's bad. Uh, you know, but- I've heard it's bad, but I've also heard a few people who are like, it's not great, but it's fun and it's way better than people say. So I'm like, okay, maybe I need to watch it. Maybe. All I know is that uh, I do like Fassbender as an actor. Um, I really enjoyed him in this movie. Uh, he was fun. Absolutely. He really was. Um, I'm trying to think, looking at my notes, seeing if there was anything else that really oh, jumped out um, Oliver Platt is always a joy. Whenever I see Oliver Platt on yes. screen in a movie, I think to myself, hey, you know who I like? I like Oliver Platt. Yes, and I haven't seen him in anything in a long time. Me neither. I wonder what he's up to. I'm looking him up. Okay, while you do that, I'll say that I was disappointed in Kevin Bacon. He wasn't great. I didn't think he was great, and I think he can be. And so it was one of those things where I'm like, was he just not given good material? Was he not given good direction? Uh-huh. I, I, he just, you know... And his motivation, uh, so his idea is let's start nuclear war so that basically the earth turns into a nuclear holocaust radiated, which will speed up the rate of mutation. And then the people who turn into mutants that can survive all this, there we go. We have our new society and our new race, basically. And, you know, it was kind of the... I don't know. It just felt almost a little too samey as Magneto in the very first X-Men. Now I'm going to just burst mutate a bunch of people and then we'll see what happens. Yes. Um, so I didn't find his motivations interesting and the relationship between him and Emma Frost, it just, I don't know. It was one of those things where I could never, he never came across as adequately 
charismatic or anything to make me go, yes, I see why people are, are following him. Yes, for sure. So I don't know. I was a little sad at that because again, I think that Kevin Bacon can be fantastic and I just didn't feel like he was in, in this movie. I agree. Um, I think he was weak. I think his whole team was pretty weak because the two dudes never say a word like in the entire film. So like they're yeah. present, I guess. And like I said, I liked January Jones's portrayal of Emma Frost more than I remembered liking her, but it's still not a good Emma Frost. She's still my favorite X-Man and she still gets like done dirty in this film. Uh, but at least it was not as bad as I thought uh, it, yeah. she was. Um, but again, when uh, part of that, uh, I think part of the weakness of her in this movie is that I don't think January Jones is a very good actor either. Um, no, she feels incredibly stiff. Uh, and so I think that that makes it difficult uh, for me to get really excited about her in this uh, in this uh, capacity. But yeah, I don't know. It, as I'm thinking more and more about it, I'm liking the movie less and less as we're talking about it. <laughs> it's going from well, you know, pretty okay to like, eh, in my estimation. So it was one of those that in my head, I remembered thinking it was one of the best. Yeah, me too. And at the end of watching it, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is below X2 and X1. Oh, for it sure. Certainly is, it certainly is above X, you know, Last Stand and, and X-Men Origins Wolverine. But, but it I is don't... solidly in the middle. It is not. I remember thinking that it was the second best one because in my, yeah. in my memory, the X-Men movies went X2 is the best and then first yep. class and then X-Men and then whatever the hell else. But no, I still maintain I think X-Men is the very best one so far, but X2 is a very close second. And I think that you'd probably swap those, but a distant but third. But only just. But a distant third is where I would put first class. And I fully expect some of these other, I mean, I know for sure Logan will be higher than it unless I am completely oh, yeah. misremembering that film. Uh, no, no way. There's no way Logan doesn't beat this one out. I mean, I remember that being extremely affecting. Uh, but yeah, I, it was a very distant third for me. And I think, you know, we'll have to see. In my memory, Days of Future Past is absolutely going to beat this one too. I have not seen it, and so we'll see. And after that, probably not. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to see because our next little run here are all ones that you haven't uh, had the pleasure of seeing. I think, I think I've seen The Wolverine, which I think is the next one. Yes, that is correct. The I have seen the Wolverine, the Wolverine, but I do not one. remember anything about it except for there's a fight on top of a train that looked worse than the one in Mission Impossible, even though that film came out 17 years prior. <laughs> and I don't even remember a fight on a train, so I'm looking forward to that. But that's because Mission Impossible 1 is one of the greatest films ever made. Dude. I love all the Mission Impossibles, even Mission too. Impossible Two, which is objectively a bad movie, and it's a stu it's got some really stupid John Woo isms. I will go to the mat for Mission Impossible Two. I you're, freaking love that movie. You're, you're talking to the person who thinks it's better than Mission Impossible Three, so I'm not disagreeing with you there. I think Mission Impossible oh, Three is the it. worst of them, um, and that is buoyed only by a stellar performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Because when was he not stellar? Uh, but oh, yeah. Mission Impossible 3, I think, is the weakest of them. But I maintain 
that first one is the best. And I recently watched them all. I had not seen five or six. Um, And so this last January, I watched all of them. And they're pretty good. Four, five, and six make a pretty good, like, trilogy of movies. But De Palma Palma is still a better director than any of those other people. De Palma's one of the well, great auteurs, and guess what? That Mission Impossible movie still feels like a Brian De Palma film. The other thing that I like about it is it feels like a spy slash suspense movie, whereas especially these last couple, which I really, really love, they're action movies with spy elements. Oh, for sure. And Mission, the first Mission Impossible is the reverse of that. It is a spy movie. With a few action elements, but really not even that much. And so, no, yeah, I, I it's a it's an excellent movie, and they're all again. I think that they're all absolutely worth watching, but I do have a hard time. Uh, three is the one I have watched the least, so I think I would easily say I enjoy it the least. Um, but you know, uh, getting back to this, like, <clears throat> I really thought I was going to enjoy X Men First Class more than I did. And like you said, there is a gap. We've got X-Men and X2, you know, close. They're clustered at the top for me so far. Same. And then there is, there's a big gap. There's a large gap. Before first class. And then there's another fairly decent gap. But I think the gap between X-Men and X2 and first class is bigger than the gap between first class and x-men whatever the last stand yeah i agree i think that there's a bigger gap at the top end than there is at the in, from the middle to the bottom i 100 percent agree i it was it was it was fine it was fine but it was not as good as i remembered it being um and i i i feel even more trepidatious about the continuation of the series now other than <laughs> other than i know that fastbender will be in it so i'll enjoy that <laughs> you know, I'm just really looking forward to Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Mostly, again, Apocalypse is the one that has Ivan Ooze. Uh, it's Oscar Isaac as Ivan Ooze, right? Yeah. Nice. I liked. Yeah. I, do you remember? Do you remember when you and I went and saw Power Rangers the movie in that theater that was it. that theater that was over by the Kmart? Um, yep. Sure in do. Woods Cross, and like it was us and like one other person. That movie's terrible, heck but yeah. I still have a, a a real fondness for it. Heck yeah. I mean, heck, I, I watched the, the new Power Rangers movie like a year and a half hey, ago. the new one's actually good. Secretly. I didn't a, think it was bad at all. Secretly a good movie. Their suits are bad. <laughs> Their suits are bad. I'll yeah. be the first person yeah. to say that. But like, secretly, that new Power Rangers movie was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Anyway, we well, should probably sign else off. To anything, I was going to say anything else to, uh, to, to talk about X-Men First Class before we go ahead and sign off for the week. Uh, I understand now why Jennifer Lawrence's star burned so bright but went out so quickly, and I have not seen a movie with her in it in six or seven years. Because she's not a good She's not a good actor. actor. She's just not very good, and oh well. Yeah. Well, we appreciate everybody again for listening. We're going to be changing pace up in a couple of weeks. I'll just go ahead. I'm not going to spoil it, but I'll tell you that I'm about 250 pages in, and that's only since uh, uh, Thursday, maybe Friday. So I, it's I'm a fast read. Confident. I'm confident I'll be able to get the other 
500 and some odd pages read. It's a fast read. I told you it would be quick. It, it's kind of a fast read. It's fun. I love I it. I just, again, I'm enjoying it. I just don't know that when I, here's the thing. When I started downloading it on the hotel's Wi-Fi and it was taking forever, I was like, oh, dear Lord, what have I gotten myself What have I done? <laughs> well, if it's any but consolation, hey, talk I'm about reading it, it it's in be magazine awesome. format. So I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to us talking about what we're going to talk about next time. But in the meantime, again, please share this uh, podcast, subscribe if you haven't, leave us a review, uh, a five-star rating would be awesome. Uh, we'll take any feedback and we'll go ahead and we'll talk about it and address it on the air. You can send that email to feedback at the middle of culture.com. And uh, otherwise we'll be back in a couple weeks where we will not talk about something X-Men related, but we'll change things up just a little bit. Indeed.